you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just hold your spot there in the sixth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in the series that we started a couple of weeks ago entitled Gospel Shape. And uh, two weeks ago, we started this series with just kind of a little bit of an intro. And uh, this is our third week now in the series. And the whole premise is that we're looking at how the gospel message, right, the message that Jesus came, that he died for us, that he rose again, and uh, that when we turn from our sin and invite him to be first in our lives, just like what Pearson demonstrated, right, that he had already made that decision, that when we do that, that the gospel is intended to shape every part of our lives, not just to get us saved, right, not just to get us into a relationship with God. The, the tragedy is when we only think the gospel is good for salvation and everything else, we unhitch from it, right? We unhitch our marriage and our parents and the decisions we make and what we do on the weekends and, and uh, how we handle our finances and all those other things, we unhitch from the gospel thinking that it's only good for salvation, that it's only good for getting us saved. That is not the way it works, right? The gospel gets us to Christ. It gets us to uh, trust ourselves to him, gets us to, to a relationship with God. But God wants us to hitch every part of our lives up to that same message. He wants us to parent in light of the gospel, to, in our marriages, in our relationships, and how we spend our money, all those other areas, how we handle ourselves at work, we should be hitching all those up to the message of the gospel as well. So that's the whole premise of this series, gospel shape, and how it, it, how it is to shape every single area of our lives, really. Well, last Sunday, we started kind of, it was the second message in the series, but we started with the first topic, and we talked about how God shapes our relationships through the gospel, that we should have gospel-shaped relationships. Now, we could have gone a hundred different directions in regards to how the gospel shapes relationships. But last Sunday, we chose to deal with the aspect of forgiveness and unforgiveness, that probably every single one of us can uh, understand what it's like to need forgiveness from somebody else and to have to be uh, forgiving as well to someone who's hurt us. We're not always real good at extending forgiveness. We're great at accepting it from God, but we're not always really, really good at extending that forgiveness to people who've done us wrongly. So last Sunday, in that message, we looked at how the gospel shapes our relationships, that relationships are messy. Every single one of us have relationships that are messy. Now, your messy relationships may be with the, uh, someone you work with. They may be with someone who's a neighbor, right? It's that neighbor two doors down that always seems to have the loud parties when you need to get the most sleep, right? And, and so that relationship's maybe a little bit messy. Or that's that coworker who's always kind of getting in close to the boss and sort of edging you out at the same time. That relationship may be a little bit messy. Sometimes the relationships we have that are messy are not just with the people in the workplace or people that we know as acquaintances. But many times, sometimes even our messiest relationships are with people that we're closest to. And what we looked at last Sunday was not just that relationships are messy, but when we are in a place where we have to extend forgiveness to someone and we choose not to, when we choose to embrace unforgiveness, unforgiveness never stays in its box right? We try to put unforgiveness in this box and we say, all right, unforgiveness, you stay there because I got to go out, you know, on a date if you're single. Unforgiveness, you stay there because I've got to go, go to work. Unforgiveness, you stay there because I've got to go raise my children. Unforgiveness, you stay in the box because I've got to go to church and I got to go serve God. And what we find is that unforgiveness never stays in the box where you try to keep it. It always bleeds over into every single area of other relationships 
You may go off on your kids and start yelling at your kids for something just minor, and really it's not your kids and it's not what they just did. It's that you've got bitterness and resentment because unforgiveness didn't stay in the box where you left it last. Right? And so we talked about how unforgiveness never stays in its box, but God has a remedy for unforgiveness, and it's called forgiveness. And then in the same way that Jesus gives forgiveness to us, he calls us to forgive others as well. And when he calls us to that, and it's a command in Scripture, but here's the thing, man, it's, it's not a burdensome command, but rather it is a freeing invitation when God says, hey, forgive them for what they did. God calls us to that because what we often find is that when we do that, we're the ones who ultimately get set free. And so we looked at how the gospel shapes our relationships last Sunday. Today, we're going to add to it, add to the mix, and we're going to look at how the gospel shapes our past. Gospel shape our past. I was riding down the road this week listening to uh, ESPN Radio. If I'm driving, I'm usually listening either to one of the Christian stations or ESPN Radio. And uh, I was listening to ESPN Radio, one of the talk shows that's on there in the afternoon. As I was driving, they were interviewing this guy. I'd never heard of him. His name's Derek Murphy. And I had never even heard of what he does for a living. Derek Murphy is a marathon investigator. Now, it doesn't mean he investigates for 24-7, right? That he investigates for hours on end. No, he investigates specifically marathons. People that have signed up and they compete in a, in a race that is 26.2 miles in distance. And what he does is, is that he goes and he investigates not everyone, but he finds the people that are cheating when they're running these road races, right? As an example, 2016 Philadelphia Marathon, I mean, thousands of people that competed in that race, he found 12 people who cheated in the Philadelphia Marathon. And what he has done, right, this is just, this, this story was engaging to me as I'm driving, I'm just captivated by this thing. He's got a website and everything. You can check it out, just not right now, please. And so he, uh, yeah, he, he investigates all these marathons and he finds these people cheating. And so what Derek Murphy says is there are two categories of people who cheat when they run marathons. Uh, he said, one, there are the course cutters, <laughs> and then two, there are the bib swappers. That, does that mean anything? To, how many of you run, and, and those two things make perfect sense? Any of you? All right. So, well, we need to get a little healthier, I suppose. And so uh, I, I would count myself in one who didn't raise our hand. And so, so you've got the course cutters, and you've got the bib swappers. Here are the course cutters. They're the ones who do exactly that. They run the race. They finish the race. The problem was they didn't run the entire 26.2 miles. Right? They may have, uh, I think in one case I heard of a story where somebody like jumped up, um, like a train or something, like got a ride over part of the course, or, or they'll do whatever it takes just to not run the whole 26.2. And so when they finish, you know, they start at the start line, they finish at the finish line, and when they finish and they cross the line, they get a time. It's just extremely fast because they didn't run 26.2 miles. They, they are course cutters. That's how they cheat. And then there are the bib swappers. The bib swappers are the ones who, and if you're not familiar with competitive you know, running like that, you get, a, you get a number, and you have to wear that number during the race. That's your bib, and that number usually, that bib has a chip either in it or you're going to be given a chip assigned to you that's going to go on your shoelace, right? And as you run, you cross these mats along the course. 
And you think you're crossing those mats to get your picture taken and to get your split at the 5 mile, 5K mark, 10K mark, 15K, 20 mile, whatever it may be. But really, it's not just for that. They are going to verify that you actually ran the race and that it matches up, uh, that your time matches up with you. And so what happens is sometimes you'll have people that will get their bib, they'll get their number, and they're not really a fast runner, but they will pay someone to swap bibs with them so that when they finish the race, their super fast time gets accredited to they themselves. They're bib swappers. Got to watch out for the bib swappers out there when you leave to go to work tomorrow. Derek Murphy in this interview was asked, so what on earth would compel someone to go to such lengths as to cut a course short or to pay somebody to swap bibs with them? He said there are two reasons. This is just phenomenal to me. He said one is because they want to qualify for a bucket list race, specifically Boston. At Boston Marathon, you have to run a specific time to qualify. And so they want to run that bucket list race. They're nowhere near fast enough to run that race, so they'll pay someone to wear their bib to finish for them, and then they'll get to go in and register and run the race themselves later. But he said the second reason, and this is, this is interesting to me, He said the second reason that people cheat like this, whether it's cutting a course short or whether it's swapping bibs with someone, is for Facebook likes. That's what he said on this interview. That was my same reaction. Driving down the road, listening to him interviewed on ESPN Radio this week, and he says that one of the two reasons people do this is for Facebook likes. Facebook was started 2004. If you're 14 years old, all you've known in your life is the existence of Facebook. There are over 2 billion people who are registered as active monthly users on Facebook. That is over one-fourth of the population of the world, right? If someone came to you and said, hey, I've got a little proposition for you, Give me a hundred bucks and I will show you how to build a business and to sell a product and guaranteed one-fourth of the people in the whole entire world will buy your product, you would probably jump all over it. Facebook is that entity. One-fourth of the world are active monthly users on Facebook. And what you have probably found, however, on Facebook is that nobody puts their bad side on Facebook. Nobody puts their bad side on social media at all. It's always us at our best, isn't it? Whenever we post on social media, be it Facebook or Twitter or some other social media platform, it's always the kids neat and dressed well and their hair is combed and they're all smiling in front of the house, right? That's the picture that gets posted on Facebook. Not the one from 15 seconds before when you had to drag them out of a tumble wrestling match on the floor or grab them back to pull them back in front of that Christmas tree because they didn't want their picture taken again. That one doesn't make it on Facebook. It's the edited version, right? You ever see these meals that get posted on Facebook? Some of you, maybe you post these meals. My meals aren't ever getting posted on social media. (laughs) It's never the one that burned the night before. It's always the one that's perfect, right? That if you eat it, you'll lose weight, guaranteed. It's that meal that gets posted. 
right? Whenever we put stuff on social media, whatever platform it may be, it's always the polished version, always the edited version, always the one that we are in control of. But here is the sad reality that when we look at life, life doesn't operate that way. We don't have an opportunity to edit it. We only get one shot. And let's just be honest, when we look back into our past, when we kind of go back there, there are certain scenes and there are certain snapshots and there are certain experiences, and let's be honest, certain choices that we had full control over, that if we had to do it all over again, we wouldn't do it that way. Because that way was a grease fire. That way blew up in our face. That way we thought was going to work out for our good, and it only ended up costing us as a result, right? And when we look at life, what we find is that every single one of us, this is the first principle in this message. I hope you jot it down. It's really simple, and it applies to every, every one of us. Everybody has a past. Everyone filling a seat in this room today, every one of us has a past. And I would be willing to say for every single one of us, that that past carries a certain amount of regret, right? There are things that you said back there that hurt people or that hurt someone special to you, and you're still experiencing the fallout of that. And if you could go back and hit that do-over button again, you would go back and hit it, but that do-over button doesn't exist, and you regret what went on back there in the past. Maybe for you it was that looking, but you knew about it, right? And, and you thought you could get away with it, and you did it, and, and maybe no one was looking, but you knew about it, right? And you carry the guilt over what you did back there when you thought no one else would be affected, no one else knew about it, you still drag the guilt and the regret of what went on back there in the past. And maybe it was a decision, maybe it was a season, maybe it was kind of that moment or that few months or whatever it may have been when it was kind of your over-the-top rail and run for the woods as fast as I can kind of a moment, right? And you sort of lived it up out there and now you look back and you regret that. Maybe you're older, you've got, you're in a relationship, you're in a marriage, you've got kids, or just, just the sheer reality where you look back and you think, man, what, what was I thinking? I, was be- I thought I was better than that. And just as you begin to kind of feel freedom and as you begin to maybe even gain some speed in your relationship with Jesus, here comes that memory. And here comes that reminder of what went on back there in the past. You know, you're not alone. The Bible has some significant stories of people who blew it in their past. You ever heard of Moses? He was one. Moses, at one point in life, was a murderer. I mean, you remember the story in Exodus, right? He, he's kind of ascending to leadership. He, he's a Hebrew. He's a Jew by heritage. He's kind of working for Pharaoh, the, the leader of Egypt. And, and he's out, you know, out and about one day, and he sees one of his own people, a Hebrew, a fellow Jew, fighting with an Egyptian, kind of the enemy sort of. And, and uh, what Moses does is he steps in. He must have been a big bad dude because he just like put the guy down and killed him right there on the spot. And the Bible tells that whole story. And, and, and apparently... Uh, he, you know, he was a big bad dude, but he couldn't dig a hole very well because he tried to hide him in the sand and somebody saw him, or at least couldn't dig really fast. And he tried to cover over the guy in the sand and, you know, somebody else spotted him and saw him. The next day, boom, it's all out in the open. Moses runs literally for the desert, for the wilderness. His life has changed. He was a murderer. You remember David, King David, right? King David, Second Samuel 11, king over the whole nation of Israel committed adultery. There was a point in his life where he, he would have to say he was an adulterer. Where, and, and not just that, but I mean, he was the leader. He was, he's the one who called the shots, and, and he, 
should have been at battle himself, but he called the, the woman who, who he had committed adultery with, called her husband in, and, or, or called kind of the, the, the leader in, actually, and, and had her husband put at the front lines right where the battle was the fiercest and to make sure he'd get killed. Sure enough, he got killed. I mean, in a way, he was a murderer as well. Simon Peter, remember him? I mean, Jesus only picked 12. He made the top 12. That's pretty good. Those inner circle three that walked with Jesus the closest. I mean, he saw everything. I mean, he, he was with Jesus at some of the biggest points that we read about in the Bible. And, and there when it mattered the most, there's Jesus. He's been arrested, falsely accused. The machine is in motion now where he's going to get tried and, and ultimately you know, beaten and then crucified. And, and Peter is there kind of in the midst as all that you know, is working out. Somebody spots him and says, hey, aren't, aren't you this guy who was with Jesus? And three different times, Simon Peter says, I, I don't even know the man, right? I don't even know him. They couldn't even call him by name. I don't even know the man. He, he, was, he was a betrayer. Paul, most of the New Testament written by Paul, there's a point in his life before Christ where, I mean, his job, his passion, his hobby was to go find Christians assembled, worshiping Christ, and to haul them back to headquarters, right, so they could be ultimately persecuted. And many of them, probably their blood was on Paul's hands because he was, at the heart of who he was, a persecutor. You know, there's a trap for us that we're in good company whenever we think about our past and we look at the regrets back there, but never does it excuse, never does it excuse those things we regret, and, and here, here's the thing, when we look back to our past and we see all those regrets that go with it, and we feel the guilt and sometimes the shame that's associated with that kind of a past, what happens is there, there are two traps. One is the, is the trap of the if only scenario, you know, where we run over in our minds over and over and over again, if only, if only I had not said that, if only I had not gone there, if only I had not been with that person, if only I had not, you know, if only, if only, if only, and our lives become like a ball and chain just shackled to whatever it is we regret from back there in the past, and we drag it with us through the rest of our lives. That's, that's one trap of living in the past. The other trap ultimately is the, the, the trap where we get defined. <laughs> we get defined by the past. It's almost like David, you could imagine him, you know, the Bible said David is a man after God's own heart. You could imagine David in his quiet moments probably thinking to himself on at least one occasion, you know what? I'm just an adulterer. And don't think for a moment that whenever he would draw closest to God, the enemy wouldn't draw close as well and whisper in his ear, don't you know who you are? Don't you remember what you did back there? And what we, 2,000 years after the cross and the empty grave, often have a hard time doing is that we're fine hitching ourselves to the God saved but we don't usually hitch our past to the gospel as well. The good news, however, is that the Bible has a lot to say about the beauty that comes when we hitch our past to the gospel and move forward in grace and freedom. And one of those pictures I want you to see here is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You've already turned there. You've already 
held your spot in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. The first the book of 1 Corinthians written by Paul, all right, this former blasphemer and persecutor of the gospel and of believers. It was written by Paul. He wrote this this letter, and that's what it is in your Bible. It's a letter that we have uh, word for word uh, in, our, in our translations in English. But this was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth back in the day, 2,000 years ago. It was known for its sinfulness. It was not a godly city. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. It was a pagan city. It was a city where, merch, uh, where uh, a business thrived. It was a hotbed of activity. But it was also a city where there were false idols and false temples seemingly everywhere. And so, for example, there was a temple of Aphrodite there in the city of Corinth where 1,000 temple prostitutes could be found pretty much on just about any given time. And so the city of Corinth was known for its godlessness. Well, Paul comes there, the book of Acts helps us to hear the story, and he shares the gospel. And when he shares the gospel that Jesus has come and he died and he rose, and if we turn from our sin and give our lives to Christ and trust him, then we're made right with God. When he shared that message, people took him up on the offer. People in that godless city said, you know what? I need a Savior, and I need Jesus, and I'm going to turn from my sin, and I'm going to give my life to Christ. This was not a religious experience. This wasn't going to church. This wasn't checking some box, man. This was like a life, absolute life change for these people. And they came to Christ, and a church was planted, and they would begin to grow in their new relationship with Jesus. The, The thing was, every single one of them, you can imagine, living in a city like Corinth, had a past. And they probably had a list a mile plus long of things that they had done before Jesus came and and had saved them that they had regretted. And so these were people who had a lot of regret, who understandably would have had a lot of shame in their life, a lot of guilt in their life. They had a lot to deal with. Well, Paul writes this letter in 1 Corinthians, and, and, and he's trying to fix some things that have gone sideways for them. He's trying to encourage them in who they are in Christ. But there's one section here in chapter 6, just three verses, that I want you to see, because I think they're extremely significant at looking at how the gospel shapes E6, verse 9 and verse 10 is where we'll start. And so Paul writes to this church, this group of believers in Corinth, And he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, this is probably a statement none of us would argue with. When you think about God and when you think about heaven, I mean, you think about perfection. You don't think about unrighteousness just being rampant all over that place, right? And so he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. Then he goes through a list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, this is a broad range of things that he mentions. And let me just say, I think for probably everyone in here, you'd have to raise your hand for at least one of the items on this list. He could have gone wider. This is what he dealt with, probably that was specific to the church in Corinth. But he's making a point here, and he's making a point about the issue of righteousness and forgiveness. And he's making a very strong point, as you'll see in a second, about the changing power of the gospel. And so he lays all this out. Now notice, these are not verbs, these are nouns, okay? And that may seem insignificant to you, but let me just point this out. Paul is not giving a litany, you've done this wrong, and 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 all this stuff. He's not giving verbs here. He's not talking about actions that had taken place. He is talking about what life was like for, for these folks specifically, 
before they had a relationship with Christ. And in other words, he's saying, you, don't you remember, you are characterized by your sin, regardless of what it looked like. You were characterized by that sin. It's the truth for all of us, right? This is, this is who, who you were. In fact, look at what he says in verse 11. He, he, he continues. This is where the good news comes. Next verse. He says, such were some of you. He says to the Corinthian churches, that's who you were. <laughs> and then that's who you were. I mean, you cheated people, but you didn't just cheat people. You were, by your nature, swindlers, you know, and he goes through this whole list. And again, all of us in this place today could find ourselves somewhere on that list. But he says, that's who you used to be. But, and here's where the gospel comes in. You were washed. Now, you were sanctified. You were justified. We don't use those words a lot today. This is what it means. When he says, you were washed, what he's referring to is that all of that sin that characterized who you were was just totally removed, and the stain was taken away along with it. Psalm would say, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. He says, man, that's, that's who you used to be. You used to be those swindlers. You used to be all that whole list of people. That's who you were. But man, when you met Jesus and you heard the message of the gospel and you hitched your life up to him, you were washed and all your sin was taken away. You were sanctified. That word means you were made holy in the sight of God. You're not seen by the God who made you as an ungodly, pagan person. No, when you met Jesus, you are seen now today as holy and as sanctified in his sight. You were justified. You know what justified means? It is a judicial term when a judge comes and he hears the case, and he hears the case against a person who has done wrong, and he makes the decision as an act of his authority to declare that person not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. And Paul is saying, there was a time in your life, man, when that's who you were, all those nouns, that's who you were, all the junk, that's who you were back there. But when you met Christ and you heard the gospel and you gave your life to him, he, as the righteous judge who could have easily cast you to hell and have been just in doing it, chose not to because he loved you and he's a God of grace and he's a God of mercy and, and, and he wants to give you a second chance and he wants to draw you close to himself. That God who created you chose instead to bang the gavel down and declare by his own authority that you are not guilty. You are righteous in his sight. Amen. Paul says that's not who you are. You can't turn a blind eye to who you were. You can't, you're not going to have amnesia, right? When we come to Jesus, he doesn't just give us amnesia of all the stuff we did back when we were without him, running high-tailing it over the top rail towards the woods off the property, right, where God didn't seem to matter anymore. We're not going to just forget all that. But what we have to understand is that even all of that junk, we can hitch it to the gospel and be reminded that that's not who we are anymore. We are washed and we are sanctified and we are justified and we are not guilty and every stain of sin is even removed in the sight of God. That's how he sees you. That is powerful. That's what drags people out of the pit of regret and puts them on a firm footing to say, you know what? I'm going to praise God. I never praised him before because of what he's done in this life. 
That understanding is what takes people and moves them into the arena of sharing that message with people that they know needs to hear it. Because it's not religion and it's not about going to church. It is about a life-changing encounter with a God who would do that for us. (laughs) Paul says that's who you were. But that's not who you are. The list is maybe still in the back of your mind, but just push it out because God has given you a new list. You know, I've, we're memorizing a verse together in this series, and I think this is maybe one of the best messages to be reminded of what that verse says. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. When Jesus was on that cross, he was your sin by choice and mine too. So that, not for no good reason, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In the context of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's whole issue was not their past, Paul's whole issue was that they weren't living in light of who they were that day, Jesus. And by the way, let me say, every single one of those sins listed in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 are going to be represented in heaven. They're going to be there, in a sense, in the life story. They'll be represented in heaven, but they won't be recognized there. Because they were replaced by the forgiveness that comes when we turn from our sin and invite Jesus to save and take over. So what sin do you regret today? You know, it's amazing to me when you get to the point of decision how many times you hear sirens in this church. I'm serious. I'm serious. It's amazing. How many distractions come up when it's at the point of decision? What, what sin? What sin dominates you today, the memory of it, that you haven't been able to let go because you still carry the shame, the guilt, and the regret? And why not begin letting that beautiful message of the gospel that was good enough to save you in the first place? Why not hitch in that past? Why not hitch it up? to that same gospel and begin to see yourself in the same way that the God who saved you sees you as washed as sanctified and justified you know at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks doesn't matter how many Facebook likes we've got it doesn't even really matter if we admit to the fact that all of our stuff isn't always polished and edited we got some junk that needed forgiving what matters is if we let Jesus forgive it yet and if we have that we live in a way that reflects the message that changed everything for us and that we cut that ball and chain loose maybe even starting today and move forward in the grace and the mercy and the love that God paid an awful high cost for you not just to have but to enjoy. If you've never given your life to Christ, man, that God stands ready today right where you sit.
come and take over your life and forgive you. Wipe the slate clean if you'll only ask him to come and forgive and take over. Lay down that sin that you're probably already tired of and ask him to come. Just surrender and Jesus will do it. And if you've done it, hey, why don't you start enjoying him from this day forward? Let's pray. God, we thank you today for the message of the gospel. Lord, it is so necessary for salvation. Lord, you tell us in your word that we have to hear the gospel message, that there's no other way to heaven, no other way to a relationship with you except through Jesus. We, we have to know who he is. We have to yield our lives to Christ to know you. And Lord, that is not a burden. It's not, not you trying to put some weight on us that we can't carry. God, you want us to know you. Life happens when we know you. But Lord, it does require surrender. There, there's no cheap grace to be found. Lord, it comes in surrender. And every day, Jesus, people met you and heard your story, and they heard all of this, and they walked away. Lord, we have to surrender to you. We can't be our own savior, our own master. And God, today I pray for those that have never given their lives to Christ, that, that this morning you'll give them the boldness and the courage and the perspective. Lord, that they'll see whatever other path they're on looking for life is not going to deliver. But God, I pray that they would see that today, for the first time, the only real decision to be made is what they're going to do with Jesus. And that right where they sit this morning, that you, Holy Spirit, would draw them to yourself. And they'd admit your sin, their sin to you, Lord. And they'd own it and confess it. And at the same time, leave it with you as they invite you, Jesus, to come in and forgive, to wipe that slate clean, and to save them and keep them forever. God, for those of us that have made that decision, we're no better than anybody else. But God, we, we pray that you'd help us to move in the grace that came that day because of the gospel when we gave our lives to Jesus. And that those things in the past that maybe for some have just held them captive and they've run through the if-only scenario for way too long. And just as they begin to gain some speed in their Christian life, their memory goes right back to what they did. And they still define themselves by what went on somewhere back there that they, they've tried to forget. Lord, let all that end. And for those who know you, God, may we define ourselves in light of the gospel. That if being washed clean and made holy and righteous and declared not guilty is good enough for you, maybe starting today it can be good enough for every one of us too. So God, thank you for what you've done. Help us to follow as you lead us and live a life that gives you honor. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.